Hi, this is Christian Kuhn of Urban Village Church in Chicago. Thanks for downloading and listening to this podcast. I feel like I am every week apologizing for a lack of podcasts, and once again, I am doing so. I won't go into why there's been no podcast lately. Just, again, accept my apologies, and uh, rather than just promising there will be more, all I can say is I will do my best. So, anyway, it is good to be back, and I'm uh, grateful for your responses and continuing uh, support. Hope it is nice where you are, as it is here in Chicago, warm and rainy, but still it's a, been a nice few days. We are in the midst of a sermon series here at Urban Village that we are calling In Formation, as we are exploring what it means to be a church without walls, and I'll explain a little bit more about that in a second. But before I get into these reflections, let me read the scripture that I'll be looking at this week. This comes from the book of Philippians. In the New Testament, I'm going to be reading from verses 18 through 26. What does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And if and I do not know which I prefer. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy and faith, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. May Christ's blessing be on the reading and living out of this word. So when I preach this at my site at Urban Village, I'm going to be showing a movie clip, one of my favorite movies starring Jim Carrey that ran almost 20 years ago called The Truman Show. If you've never seen The Truman Show, it's essentially a harbinger of reality shows as we know it. The movie is about a man named Truman. Truman is the star. Uh, And as the movie explains, Truman is the star of a reality show that he doesn't realize. The cameras have been on Truman since the day he was born, and everyone who surrounds him, his parents, the woman that he marries, all of his friends, every member of the community are all actors. They know that they are being filmed, but Truman does not know. And in the movie, this show called The Truman Show is wildly popular. So we now see in the movie where Truman is beginning to catch on that uh, weird things are happening. And in fact, he realizes that something about his life isn't quite real. And so at the very end of the movie, Truman has kind of caught on to something and he realizes that this is all a big television show. So he has to make a decision at the very end of the movie whether he will stay in this created, supposedly safe environment Or will he leave the show to experience the world and all of its uncertainties? The producer, director, creator of this show, The Truman Show, whose name is Christoph in the movie, asks him, uh, as Truman is about to walk out the door, Christoph asks him whether he really wants to do that. Because as Christoph tells Truman, in my world, you have nothing to fear. So Truman has to make a decision. Does he want to enter a world that he is totally unfamiliar with, where there is uncertainty, there may be fear, there may be anxiety, 
or will he stay where it's known, safe, and he will be protected? Uh, I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert since the movie is almost 20 years old. Hopefully I'm not ruining anything for folks. Truman makes the decision to leave this show and go out into the world. And of course, that's when the movie ends, so we don't know how Truman does. So I think about that, or I thought about that as I was reflecting this week on this particular sermon as we're exploring this sermon series about what does it mean to be a church without walls, and as it focuses on race and racism. And I'm wondering if sometimes do we have that same choice? Do we make that same choice? Especially when we get into and talk about issues that are that are difficult and challenging when we talk about race and racism, and sometimes it's tempting to want to live in a quote-unquote perfect world. Wherever that may be, we want to go there so we don't have to think about pain. We don't have to think about suffering. We don't have to think about injustice. We just want to go on with our own little lives and we don't pay attention. We don't read articles. We don't listen to the stories. Now, I realize when I say that, that some of us have the privilege of nearly always escaping that world. It's easy for me, for example, as a white, straight, cisgender male, it's easy for me to escape because there are lots of places where I could go to escape where people... Um, look like me, where most of my choices are given to me if I desire them. So I can escape. But I also realize that some do not have that choice. Even if they wanted to escape, they cannot escape because of the color of their skin or sexual orientation or gender identity. They don't have that privilege. And yet still, it might be tempting to try to go to a world where we don't have to deal with any of these things. But in this sermon series... If we're serious about being with church without walls, if we're serious about being an individual without walls, we've talked not about escaping, but engaging. And not just engaging in a way that makes us feel good about ourselves. Our Hyde Park Woodlawn site pastor Emily McGinley this week on our e-news wrote a really good article about how sometimes well-meaning, supposedly quote-unquote progressive people will read, say, a book about racism, and they'll put it on social media, or they'll sit through this sermon series And yet they don't really begin to engage or change their behaviors. They may feel good. Well, I've read this book, and so I pat myself on the back, and that's that's good. I've I've made this quote by Martin Luther King on Twitter, and I've done my part. And they don't fully, really engage. They're still escaping into a world where nothing has changed, and people of color are still treated unjustly. And that's what I want to talk about today. Will you make the decision to engage? Will you make the decision to resist injustice and racism? Now, think carefully before you immediately say, yes, I want to do that, because it means a daily decision, and it means daily challenging powers that want to keep things the way they are. Will you make that decision to resist on big and small levels? Well, in our scripture this week, we read the story of a man who had to make a decision about escaping or whether to stay put and engage and resist. This is from the book of Philippians, and it was written by a man named Paul. I've talked about Paul before. If you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, Paul was a man who had an experience of the risen Christ that totally transformed his life. And in the 30s and 40s and 50s, after Jesus was resurrected, Paul goes all around what is today Greece and Turkey to share the good news of the gospel, to share the change that was happening in his life. And so he started these new faith communities all around and was writing letters to these faith communities to tell them, here's who Jesus is, and this is how we should respond because of this good news. 
Now, scholars believe that this particular letter, Philippians, was written to a church in Philippi and was written probably in the late 50s, early 60s. Interestingly, this letter has numerous qualities, including that it's perhaps Paul's most joyous letter. The word joy or the word rejoice is mentioned 12 times, and we see that in our text today, too. Paul mentions rejoicing a couple of times. But, interestingly, scholars believe this was written from prison. They don't know exactly where, maybe from the city of Corinth, maybe from the city of Ephesus. No one knows exactly for sure, but here is a man who has been put in prison because of his beliefs and how he is conveying these beliefs, and yet he continues to rejoice, and he continues to be joyful. Now, first and foremost, when we look at this letter and know something about Paul, Paul's goal, his ultimate goal, is to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 18 says this, what does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way. That is perhaps Paul's main mission in life, that Christ is is proclaimed in every way, even if it's out of false motives or or true. As long as Christ is being proclaimed, Paul says, I rejoice. He knows that by living and speaking and continuing to write, he knows that his speaking with boldness, I'm at verse 20 now, his speaking with boldness brings about Christ's exaltation. But he also knows that his being in prison may also bring Christ's exaltation. So that work that he is doing here and now, he knows that this is doing, furthering his own mission. And that is that Christ is proclaimed in every way. But here's his dilemma. He knows that Christ is being exalted by the things that he does and says and writes. But, and here's verse 23, but I am hard pressed between the two. The other choice is this. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul has a sense that when he dies, he will be with Christ in a new way. And that, he believes, is the better choice. That is what will make him feel the best. In a sense, that's his escape. Not that Paul is contemplating suicide, but there's a sense perhaps of escaping and wanting to be with Christ. And he could devote all of his energies to that. There were some at the time who said, we're not going to worry about doing any work here and now because they believed Christ would come again. And so they didn't engage the world at all. So Paul could, in a sense, escape in that way too. But Paul knew that that was not his own calling. Verse 24 says this, to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain. So Paul could escape in a sense, disengage from the world, and just await his time when he would be with Christ. But he knows even if he's imprisoned, even if he knows it comes with risks and some heartache, he knows by the work that he does that Christ is, is being proclaimed in every way. One scholar I was reading this week says this, the church certainly needs men and women with Paul's courage who are not afraid to suffer for that in which they believe. The gospel brings freedom, friends. The gospel is good news. And if we believe this, that means that we are called to actually live it out. It's not something that we simply say, It's not just one or two books. It's not just one or two posts on social media. These things are not bad. But it means a daily commitment to engaging and resisting the forces that bring about injustice and racism. A daily 
decision. And so we ask ourselves, do I want to be a part of a church without walls? Do I want to be an individual without walls? Do I want to make the decision not just to escape, and I don't want to deal with this, but to stay? Knowing that if we make that decision not to escape, if we make that decision to engage, it means discomfort and maybe suffering. There's a great quote. Ta-Nehisi Coates in the book Between the World and Me says this, and he puts it bluntly, but all our phrasing, race relations, racial chasm, racial justice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy, serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience, that it dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscle, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth. You must never look away from this. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions all land with great violence upon the body. If we make a decision saying, yes, I want to be a part of the church without walls. I want to be an individual without walls. I want to resist. It means that we cannot look away that we must look at the pain, both the physical and emotional and spiritual pain that racism brings. And I say this to people who are raced white, and I say that to people of color as well. And so if we make that decision that, yes, we do this, then we see and recognize that we do this in different ways, both on a small level, what we call micro-resistance, and on larger scales, macro-level resistance, too. Let me also recognize, too, and, and, and name the lens that I'm speaking from. I'm, after, my first, after the first sermon in this series, I was appreciative and, and grateful for our worship leader at, at Urban Village, Darren Calhoun, at the South Loop site, who said that he appreciated the things I said in my sermon, but also to recognize that uh, I'm not just speaking to white people, that we cannot, that I cannot just say this is just for whites and what you can res- do and respond to, because people of color are also part of this movement and part of this resistance. Well, so I'm doing my best to read and to listen, but I also recognize the lens I'm speaking from, and so. My apologies if I'm making a suggestion that doesn't quite compute for you, but let me say that whether it is in small micro-level ways or large systemic macro-level ways that I and we need to hear everybody's voice, but particularly we need to hear the voices of people of color. And here's an example of what micro-level resistance is from a person of color. So, And this happened again from somebody at our own site at Urban Village there was, there is a woman uh, at our site named Laura, quiet. I've asked her to give her testimony before, and she had been a little bit hesitant in the past. But this sermon series has, I think, stirred something within her. Laura is Filipino-American. And after our second sermon in this series, uh, she came up to me and talked about and talked about how this was affecting her and what it affected, how it affected her as a Filipino American. And sometimes she feels like she may fall through the cracks because sometimes when we talk about race, we may immediately think that this is a black white issue. And that's part of it, a large part of it to be sure, but it's not just that when we are talking about what does it mean to be a church without walls. And so she has been thinking about her own, uh, as we call intersectionality. What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a Filipino American when we're talking about these things and what is my role in all of this? And so 
She didn't necessarily challenge me or push me, but in some ways, maybe she did in saying that there are multiple levels here, that it is not just a black and white thing, that the others are effective. And so she's been sending me articles and she volunteered to give testimony. And she was giving testimony on June 5th to speak about these. And I think this is for Laura, her own micro resistance, her way of speaking up and having a voice. And it might not seem like a big deal, but I think for Laura, who is, as I said, kind of quiet and soft-spoken for her to speak up to me, was I was really an act of courage for her. And I greatly appreciate it. So that was, in her way, kind of micro-resistance, pushing back in a small way. For white people, micro-resistance might be and is. How do we navigate our conversations at the bar, at work, in the family, when people make broad stereotypes about a certain segment of the population? If they may say, well, you know, it's those Hispanics, and they're always doing this. Or they may be saying, well, you know, I was walking down the street, and this black guy came up to me and asked me for money. And you think about things like this, too, that they're so embedded into our daily conversation. And you think, well, what difference does it make that this guy was black, that he came up to you and asked for money? And these happen on the day-to-day. And so for people who are white, if we're in a, in a space where we can begin to speak out and maybe nudge or push or shove people in different ways to think differently, how do we do that? How do we navigate those conversations? And it is not always easy. We may lose friendships in the process. I've talked to people who have been posting some things on social media, and they're getting pushback from friends maybe that they grew up with. One I saw said that people have been calling him a piece of crap, and they didn't say crap because of this. And yet, if we're serious about this, if we want to engage, if we want to resist, these are the risks and the discomfort that we must take on micro levels. But we do this on macro levels in large systemic ways as well. I was thinking this week, uh, a model for me, and I hope that we can live this out at Urban Village as well, came from or is evident in a, in a church in Chicago where I did my field education. I did my internship as a seminarian at Holy Covenant United Methodist Church. Holy Covenant for its history has been pretty much a white majority church, but it has also been influential in many justice movements throughout the city, one of which happened in the 1970s and 1980s. And there was a member at Holy Covenant named William Horry. William Horry, Japanese-American man. And in the early 1940s, he and his family, because of a directive, an executive order put forth by Franklin Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, he authorized military commanders to remove residents of Japanese descent from any areas they designated, which turned out to be the entire Pacific coast. So about 110,000 Japanese Americans were evicted from their homes and taken to detention camps. The authorities cited fears of espionage to justify this, and there was little pushback at the time, but over time, after the war, later on, people were realizing the racism and the unjustness of this and what came to be known as the redress movement where they were wanting an apology and they were wanting uh, funds to be given to these individuals. And William Horry brought suit against the United States for these things. He, his lawsuit called out 22 causes of action and sought $10,000 for each of these injustices done by Japanese American. His suit was eventually thrown out, but they did not stop fighting until finally Congress voted to give each individual who was still alive, who was put in internment camps, twenty to $25,000 each. 
because they kept up this fight. Now, how Holy Covenant plays into this is Mr. Horry was not only a member of Holy Covenant, but they gave them space. Literally, they gave them space. Mr. Horry's organization was the National Council for Japanese American Redress. And they were taking the lead. The Japanese American members of Holy Covenant, they were the ones taking the lead in this fight. And white allies were with them, but they were giving them space. They were not saying, here, let us take over. But instead, they were speaking up, but they were not speaking over. They were not taking over the power or not speaking for these Japanese-American citizens. And that's one of the things that we as white allies can do is to speak up, but not over. One of the things I was talking to Bonnie Beckenchrist, who was pastor of Holy Covenant and was Mr. and was William Horry's pastor for many years, and said that one of the things that he regrets is that they did not push harder to make sure that this would never happen again. So in the early 2000s, when there was beginning talk about maybe we put Muslims or Arabs in something similar to an internment camps, and he feels, Mr. William Hoare was saying, I wish we had done more to make sure that what happened to us never happens again. So here I think we see an example perhaps of people of color, Japanese Americans who were stepping up, making sure that they were speaking up and so that they would not just escape and not let others escape and not say, well, that's all well and good, but that happened in the past. We're not going to talk about that anymore. They would not stand for that. And their white allies were literally giving them space, physical space at the church, but also they were saying, we are with you and speaking up with you, but they were not saying we speak up for you and They were saying, you are the leaders here and we will follow you in this. Now, I realize this took place a few years ago and we may think, well, how does this respond and how does this work for us today? But I think we as a church can continue to think about how can we do the same thing? How can we make sure that these voices are being heard? What can Urban Village, what can your church, wherever you're listening to this, how can your church do something to join forces with others. And that might be a Black Lives Matter chapter where you are here in Chicago. And I think in other cities too, there's Black Youth Project. These are young black adults who are speaking up on different justice issues that we can make sure that those voices are being heard. So that if you're a person of color, that we can encourage, that you can be encouraged to speak up and resist. If you're a white ally, that you can also make sure that you can speak up and not for, but you're continuing this struggle. So will it be a Black Lives Matter movement? Will it be the Black Youth Project? Will it be another justice issue here in Chicago with a fair cops ordinance to make sure that police brutality doesn't continue to happen in our city? There are so many different options for us. Maybe it's an immigration issue where you are. Whatever it is, what can you do to make sure that those voices are heard? If you're a person of color, may God give you the courage to speak up. If you are a white ally, then what can you do to join your voices but make sure that it is the people of color whose voices are being heard? Because this is all about resistance. It is engaging. It is not escaping. It's so easy to think, oh, I just want to go somewhere. We don't have to worry about this. I want to go to a place where we can just say, oh, color doesn't matter. And it's easy for white people to say that. Because when we say color doesn't matter, that usually means that whites are in charge, that whites have the power. And we cannot do that. We cannot escape to that world. We must escape, or we must, I'm sorry, we must engage and we must resist in these ways as Paul did when he'd say, I would rather go elsewhere, but instead I will remain 
and I will continue to make sure that Christ is exalted. And I think when we speak up and show up, that we are also in honoring those voices. We are also making sure that Christ is being exalted in this way. Christ who constantly made sure that all voices were being heard, especially those on the margins. That is our call to resist and engage and not escape. That's what it means to be individuals and churches without walls. Amen. Well, friends, thank you for listening and engaging. We have one more sermon in this series, and I will be back, uh, and I will speak and and record again next week. So um, I'll look forward to being with you then. Until that time, friends, may the God of hope and courage and strength be with you now and into this week and beyond. May the peace of Christ be yours. My love.